This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. This is scary reality. Did you know there are over 53,000 missing persons incidents reported to Australian police annually? Thankfully, 90% of these are found safe and well within a week. But there is 1% who will remain missing long term. Gone is the title of the book, and Glenna Thompson is the author. Welcome, Glenna. Thank you for having me. In the acknowledgements, you thank the MIST Foundation. What do they do? So the MIST Foundation is an organisation started by Lauren O'Keefe. She's their CEO. She started the organisation probably around about 10 or more years ago after her brother went missing. And it took three and a half years for her to discover what had happened to him. She... Uh, and her brother were very close. They were about to go on a half marathon together and he just disappeared. And the not knowing about what's happened to her loved one was incredibly traumatic for her. She went looking for him. She left her job. She went to Queensland uh, because there'd been a sighting of somebody who resembled him. And she decided when he was ultimately found, he had ended his own life tragically, that the experience was so challenging for the whole family, she decided to support other families who were suffering or had suffered the same experience. So this MIST Foundation provides emotional and practical assistance. Yes, I, that's exactly right. The police and support services will do can do so much, but what goes on inside the family... Uh, when someone's missing, that not knowing, Mm. it's a particular type of grief, it's called ambiguous loss. That means that you can't get closure. Is my loved one who I don't know where they are, are they dead or alive? And even when it's common sense will say they have passed away, whatever those circumstances might be, there are examples of families that still can't sell their house. They can't move on because that person just might come home. And you're just left in... It's, it's splinters of family. Everybody will manage things in their own way. Lauren O'Keefe at the Mist Foundation started a series of podcasts called That's Missing. And as a writer, I needed to do some research about ambiguous loss and what would happen to a family when somebody went missing. These podcasts were challenging and incredibly heartbreaking where they're true stories of families throughout Australia who have had somebody missing for sometimes years, uh, decades and as a writer I was able to take all that on board and apply some of that experience and learning into my characters in my book. Gone, your book, is fictional. It is 100% fictional. Let's set the scene. It's the last day of school for the year. Kids let out early, 90 minutes before the school bus comes. So when and where are the kids waiting? So it's a very hot day. It's based in northeast Victoria where my husband and I had a cattle property for 20 years. So all of my books are situated in that sort of geography because it's quite interesting and evocative. And the children there's I think 23 or so of them, I'll go to the local showgrounds to wait in the shade for the bus. And there's these massive, they really exist, these beautiful ancient Moreton Bay figs which provide a lot of shade and the, the kids are waiting there when Rebecca, who goes missing, 
mum turns up and there's an argument. Now, we better mention, because when when you talk about school-age kids, you know, (laughs) this is pre-mobile phone times. Correct. So I've written the book like a memoir. So Eliza is the narrator of this book. And when this book opens, she's only 14 years old, but she's 53 when she tells the story to the readers. She's 14, her sister is 16, and it's the setting of the scene. It's like when you're writing a book, um, you have a, a plot trigger. Everything's going along normally, kids are waiting for the bus. It's a normal day, ordinary day, and then something happens. You and better nothing... tell us what it is. Okay, mum has an, ag- an argument with the eldest daughter, accusing her of stealing money from her purse. Rebecca denies that she's done that. But there's history between the mother and daughter. You know, teenage girls, I've got, I had two. It can mm. be complicated. Where you've got this sort of challenging relationship between a mother and a, a, an oldest daughter, who I have to say is fairly rebellious, probably a bit naive, which is a bit of a lethal combination. And the mother and the daughter have an argument publicly in front of all the other students. Which gets a bit physical. It does, a bit of pushing and shoving. Mm. And Rebecca is humiliated, embarrassed, so she takes off. And she's never seen again. So Rebecca Bundy, she's 16 years old. She's in her last year of school. And as you say, the story is told from her younger sister, Eliza. Rebecca is very much like her mother, beautiful and glamorous. Her mother was always on to Eliza about being fat. So even at 14, she's been vomiting up overindulged food. She's told she's like her father. Does she see this as a positive? What's he like? It's a good question. And I have to be careful with my answer because I don't necessarily want to be taken literally. But Maury Bundy, he's an apple orchardist, he's very like my dad. And I have to say, Diane, the mother, is nothing like my mother. <laughs> but I grew up on an apple orchard uh, out at the One Turner South at the corner of Stud Road and Burwood Highway, which at that time in the 50s, 60s, 70s was a green belt of apple orchards. So I was able to put that apple orchard into this book. And I also worked in the local shop, which is also a major feature in this book. Fish and chips? We ha- uh, No, there was no fish and chips. That's another, that's another story again. But um, so I've just confused myself. Where was I going with <laughs> You're that You're talking answer? about Maury. Yeah, so Maury's very like my dad and um, a gentle man, very long-suffering man. And I have to say, Dad's passed away. But if he was married to someone like Dan- Diane, who's, you know, she's an interesting character... I think behave just like he did. He would he'd be long-suffering. He, he would go out and work long hours on the apple orchard. Eliza is depicted in the book to look like him, which she says is not a bad thing. She's just not stunning like the mother and the older sister. Well, the older sister, Rebecca, has been forbidden to mix with Bull. Who's he and why? So Bull that? is another character. He's called Bull because he has a gun. It was given to him by his grandmother who is raising him. And he's a bullseye shot. And he's a poor, he comes from a poor family, denoted in the book because they only have an outside toilet. The mother, as we've just described, is glamorous and beautiful, but she's also a snob. And she puts these ideas into the head of her daughters where they are told they are not to associate with this particular family because they're not good enough. Police, when uh, Rebecca disappears, they're very quick to question him because, you know, he's he's known in the local township. But two days later, the police appear to become less interested in Rebecca's case. That's right. So a bull is a target because he has had trouble with the police before. And I think also that notion of uh, a young guy with a bit of a, a, a tough attitude. He's known to be a bit of a street fighter. 
But I needed, as a writer, a plot device to take the attention away from the missing girl, Rebecca. So two or three days after she has disappeared, there is a murder-suicide in the small country town, which diverts everybody's attention. It is horrific. And there was a true story along these lines several years ago in another state that I remember and feeling quite shocked by and when I was writing this book, that memory of that particular murder-suicide on a cattle property or a farm came back to me and I put it into this book in a fictional way and it, it worked because it is so shocking. The town's empathy, the police resources, everything is diverted to this tragedy in the town and Rebecca, who has got a bit of form, who had run away before, she's sort of forgotten and the police sort of their inquiries sort of peter out and they sort of come and go. But essentially that tragedy in the town of that murder-suicide is a, a diversion tactic. Rebecca was their babysitter. So there's gossip about the possibility of the murder-suicide being connected to Rebecca's disappearance. It's also the end of the school year and the mass teacher has also left. What's the gossip about him? Yeah, so this is uh, another good question. So a lot of the plot points, it's like plotting in a book. I actually didn't plot. That's a whole other conversation about how I've written this book. But there are a lot of suspects and it keeps the reader turning the page. What happened? When they're in the showgrounds at the very beginning, when the mother and the daughter have the argument, Eliza, the younger sister who is telling this story, has seen... an unfamiliar fellow walking in the showgrounds with his dog and she thinks that's suspicious. I've never seen him before. Bull, the boyfriend of Rebecca, is a suspect and she was having a secret relationship with him that the parents didn't know about. There's a school teacher, Mr Soydon, who is from Melbourne and this is a country school and he stands out. He's quite charismatic and Rebecca is herself. There's a rumour that she would go to his house at lunchtimes. None of these rumours are substantiated. Then she babysat for the Healy family, which was the family that, where the murder-suicide occurred. And there's a question about, is there a link between these two, her disappearance and this murder-suicide? Is there a connection? And it, it just creates this simmering story around, goodness me, there are so many possible intertwined leads. Where is this taking us? So there's no leads, it's a cold case, the family's in trauma, Rebecca and the Bundy family were the centre of gossip. How did Diane, the mother, react to all of this? She's taken to her bed. Mm. She's a wedding cake decorator and I have a a niece who's a a wedding cake decorator so I was able to embrace her ideas about wedding cake decorating. It seemed like a unique thing for the mother to do. January's a very busy time to be doing cake decorating and... She cancels all those orders, goes to her bed and just is unbelievably depressed at the loss of her child. Gone by with the author, Glena Thompson. Now, whew, Eliza is the younger daughter. Her mum has gone back to bed and she's not in good mental health and the father is out picking apples, you know, sort of containing his grief. And Eliza is really hurting, but she's being overlooked. Let's hear her voice. Okay, so I'm reading from chapter 8. Why had Rebecca left without a word to me or our parents? Where was she? I came up with different scenarios and played them out in my mind like short, vivid movies. 
Sometimes Rebecca was laughing and dancing on a beautiful beach. I always imagined her wearing a long white flowing dress, which I thought was interesting. Perhaps a bride or an angel, something pure and innocent. Yet I knew by then she was neither of those things. Other times she was tied up, bruised and bloodied, with red and swollen eyes, duct tape covering her mouth so she couldn't scream for help. My imagination surprised me, and there were worse things I thought of, graphic, extreme, appalling. I was sending myself mad, which made me think of my mother, that perhaps I was more like her than I knew. The point was, nothing made any sense. Eliza is having no physical contact with anyone. We're going to have you reading again from page 51 what Eliza does to diminish the pain. Okay. Dad glaring at me with his disapproving eyes, a controlling, passive-aggressive bastard because I had to be good, always good, or he'd turn his back on me and walk away. And Mum acting helpless in bed. I hated my parents. There, I finally admitted it. Rebecca, where are you? Help me. I pulled the knife sideways, and when the blood flowed out like escaping poison, I felt I could breathe again, finally released from pain. More like I'd given myself a different pain, a lovely distraction, and I pressed a tea towel onto it to soak up all the hurt and loneliness that I had released. Yeah, there's some vivid descriptions. and it's She's incredibly isolated. I think that's what yeah. that I'm trying to portray or the character is portraying to the reader about a young girl, she's 14, this traumatic event has happened and she's also swept up in what happened with the murder-suicide as well. There's, and all the rumours coming out about her sister, she's so isolated and, and this is how, unfortunately, she's dealing with it. So it's her home life and school life are distressing and her dog dies. She's getting physical contact having sex with a boy she doesn't even like. So when the chance to leave is offered, she takes it. She goes boarding with her auntie in Melbourne and then university. Nothing happened on the case except for Bull's vigilante actions. (laughs) Yeah, so I wrote that chapter when the book was finished. It just became obvious that uh, there needed to be further development of Bull. What happened to Bull after Eliza left the mountain? So Bull being investigated heavily by the police. He's the number one suspect, even though they've got no evidence and no matter what he says makes no difference. He decides, I'm going to find out who actually did this. And he's a big, tough guy. He's got this fabulous reputation. He's a bit of a hero amongst his peer group. So he goes and finds the guy in the showground, the school teacher. Jacob Healy's already dead. And there's an, a workman that works on the family orchard. He goes after these three men and physically assaults them to find out what they know. As it turns out, he didn't find out anything. Uh, he hands himself into the police and he's sent to prison for two years. He wasn't the only one doing something odd. The father, Murray. What did he do every year? Well, this taps back into this story or the notion, experience of ambiguous loss. I don't know where my daughter is. My loved child, where is she? The police haven't come up with anything. She's vanished. I love her. So every year, because there had been rumours that she'd gone to Queensland, when she was doing her final year of school, she was talking about going to Queensland with her girlfriend 
and hanging out there for the school holidays. And her parents had forbid her to do that. She was only 17 years old. And she was a headstrong young woman. So that was for Mori, the father, the only possible reality that perhaps she has really gone to Queensland. So I'm going to go and find her. So after the first year, he buys a caravan and off he goes. It's between harvest and pruning. I know that from my childhood. Uh, So around about March till about June, he would go away for about eight weeks, sometimes less, and just visit hostels police stations, libraries, cafes. He'd put her poster up on, in bus stops, on power poles. He would do everything he could to just get recognition about where she was. And he did that year after year after year. He gave information of, if you see this person, contact me. That's one of the reasons they never sold their house. They kept the phone line. So let's look at the role of media in missing persons. First of all, there's young Eliza with the television crew. Yes, so I've worked in the media for a long time in a former career back in the 90s and uh, I had some interesting experiences myself so I was able to lean into that. So she's working in the shop. One day a film crew turns up who want to interview her and she's 14 years old She speaks to the woman running the shop who says, no, we need to get permission from your parents. They say, no, all communication about this matter has to go to the police. And they trick her into an interview. And that interview sets the story in a whole different environment because all of a sudden it's out there in the public domain that the missing sister was the babysitter for the family that had all been in the murder-suicide. It tarnished the reputation, it shamed the family and it made Eliza herself more isolated than ever because she was embarrassed. She, the fa- Everybody looked on the, the missing sister as, as a... I'm trying to think of the yeah. word. <laughs> well, you sum it up beautifully. Sensationalism, not information. Yes, thank you. Yes. And, and then there's the phone calls and this is a quote from the book. Mystics had vision of her, knew where she was buried. Other times, sadists would laugh, saying that raped and killed her and would tell us where she was buried if we paid them thousands of dollars. <sighs> then there's the cold case podcasts. Now, what do you, how do you feel about those? Um, well, I think it it's, it's raises a whole interesting conversation around, because uh, true crime is a big deal. Uh, people are fascinated by true crime and there's a lot of true crime out there for people who are, you know, listeners and readers. I suppose I've struggled a little bit with the notion of crime as entertainment. Um, and that's where I go back to the Mist Foundation where uh, it's really looking authentically at what happens in people's lives. So I've tried to touch on that in the book. Uh, in relation to podcasts and people making accusations, I'm hoping that what I've taken the reader away from the sensationalism of true crime and what's possible back into what's really going on inside the hurting family. Look, it's it's 30 years on and Eliza has married. She's living and working in Scotland. She's got her own daughter. And then she still sets up a Facebook account as Find Rebecca Bundy. She's aware that she will get false information. And this is another quote. It was the, the fraudsters, the religious nutjobs, or people wanting money for information. 
you know, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's a burden. It's a terrible, terrible burden for the family because you never, this gets back into this notion of not knowing because one of those contacts or communications, a phone call, might be the actual lead that you've been waiting for all these years. And I've got to say, the ending is a surprise. It had me going right to the very end. And it was satisfying, I must say. But you introduce all these other characters of the little township of Mayhill. We have Robin Hart, the fish and chip shop with her husband, Gary, who doesn't really go away carting hay. He actually has to go to a hospital to treat his PTSD from Vietnam. Sinead Healy spends more than she should on shopping. Another story there. Cheryl Tennant, this is Bull's grandmother, a potter. Just these little physical snaps of these people that is just so fascinating. And Cora Engelman. All we know about her is she comes into the shop regularly. She's a retired horse farrier who wore her dead husband's clothes. Now, these are fascinating little snapshots of people. Are we ever going to learn any more about them? (laughs) No, but I am writing another book and there are going to be some linkages back to this particular book. I suppose in relation to all of those characters, all of us as we go through our lives, you do see the eccentricities in various people and you're able to just bring them into your character. Not that any one of those characters by any stretch of the imagination is a real person but you can just give that little thing to this character or that little thing to that character just to lift the story and make it because I think they're all entirely believable. What could be worse than losing a child and never finding them again? Gone by Glenna Thompson has the younger sister still experienced the grief so centred in the family but still questioning and looking 40 years after? Well, if people want to know more about this, they can tap in tomorrow night at the Rising Sun Hotel. It's uh, Glenna is going to be speaking on a panel of dark and deadly family secrets. So who are you speaking with? I'm speaking with uh, Joe Dixon and Kylie Orr, Orr is spelled O-double-R, and Vicky Petratus, who's... Um, a fabulous writer, true crime writer, and she's just written her first um, very successful fiction crime book. She's been on 3CR. Yeah, and she's going to be the, the leading the panel. And so it'll be a, a terrific night. It's, I think all the information, any listeners who are interested in attending, I think all the information is on the Sisters in Crime website. Oh, it's, and it's a website to be looked at. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.